what is this, episode 44? This is, yeah, episode 44. All right. Welcome to episode 44 of the Web 2.0 show. I can has Twitter. I'm your host, Josh Owens. And I'm Adam Stukoviak. The Web 2.0 show profiles the awesomest people on the web, building the coolest shit ever. Twitter. Or the hottest people no longer behind the hottest services, the latest services. So when we when we recorded this episode, Blaine was still working at Twitter. Happily at Twitter. Yes, happily. But Blaine is no longer at Twitter. Happily. I, well, I don't know if that's happy. He's a cool guy, though, so hopefully he's happy. So, uh, since we're talking about Twitter, we should really mention that, Adam, you have a Twitter account yep. at Adam Stack. Adam, S-T-A-C. And I have one at Josh Owens. And the Web 2.0 Show has a Twitter account as well you should follow. And that is at Web 2.0 Show. So, uh, after the end of our interview with Blaine, we do have an interesting little snippet for you. Um, we went to the party... After the Future of Web Apps, which, by the way, this is part of the Future of Web Apps series, we went to the party at Nikki Beach. Um, Nikki Beach. Nikki Beach, and we uh, we we got some recordings done while we were there. And uh, Stephen Bristol was with us. Stephen Bristol. Stephen Bristol. We uh, we happened to walk by Blaine and Cal Henderson. They were just sitting there as we were walking in. And uh, Steve totally badgered them into talking about uh, Rails versus PHP, since Flickr is obviously built on PHP. And uh, it was it was an interesting conversation. And uh, Steve Steve's quite a character. I think this will be our this will be our first time the audience hears Steve. Um, we have several upcoming episodes that involve Steve. So yeah, Steven gets around, man. He's been on. The Rails Interview podcast. He's been on the Web 2.0 show, uh, and he also uh, did something with Obi on uh, the Steve and Obi show. Yeah, uh, I'm sure he'll be on the Rails podcast at some point too. Yeah, with Jeff, <laughs> who's got a wild <laughs> voice. Grossenbach. I can't, I can't even do his voice justice. Yeah, he he's got such a unique voice. Speaking of unique voices, my voice is a little unique when we're in Florida. Land on Wednesday, wake up Thursday, my throat is killing me. And next thing you know, I'm like DMX trying to talk. And I basically didn't even talk at all on our podcast because my freaking voice was killing me. Yes, yes. And I don't, I don't even know if I asked questions during that particular interview because, you know, someone said to me, hey, bitch, go get the drinks and... Next thing I know, the interview's like half done by the time I get back with the drinks. So, Blaine Cook, man, he left Twitter. What's up with that? I don't know, dude. According to Mike Arrington, it was on bad terms. But, you know, I guess if I were an asshole, I would probably stir up rumors like that, too. What, you call Blaine an asshole? No. Not Blaine. Oh, Mike. You're calling Mike Arrington an asshole. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. But he is, you know, one of the hundred most influential people. According to Times. You don't get to be that without being an asshole. I guess. I don't know. It's I a requirement, man. I, I just, you know, I, I don't think you need to personally attack people. Like, everyone knows that a lot of the Twitter scaling problems had to do with some of the stuff that was going on between Twitter and Joyent. 
not so much between Twitter and Rails or Twitter and, you know, whatever. <laughs> this is this, There's a reason why they moved to their own data center and away from Joint, because uh, Joint just wasn't meeting their needs. So, you know, but if you want to try to make it out to be one person's fault, that's what Mike did. And that's really not what it was at all. Like, Blaine did an amazing job of growing this service. And, like, I, I, I don't know, like, how the guy... He's got, like, really long hair. I don't know how that's possible. Because if I were in that situation, I'd be tearing my hair out, you know? Especially when you're in the middle of a conversation or slash uh, uh, giving a presentation in Florida and your phone's blowing up with... Because Twitter's down. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. But, I mean, it's just... It's such... I mean, if you really sit down and think about Twitter and, like, anyone, like, try to think of anyone that's doing anything like this. Like, they have their core, you know, they've, they've got Jabber servers and they're doing memcache stuff. And they have API servers for people who are doing stuff like, you know, using Twitterific or using any of the, the non-web page clients. And, and then you have people that are also hitting from the web page that want instantaneous updates. And then you also have people that are on IM and you have people that are on their phone. I mean, this is like a centralized communication tool. And, you know, you look at, you look at Twitter and, and what it started as is a web app. This is, this is really amazing stuff. You know, uh, I, I look at, I look at things like campfire and that's interesting to me too, because that started as, you know, just a web app, and it's still just a web app, and they don't have an API, but it's curious because, like, you know, they're, they're building this real-time chat system, and it's all based on the HTTP protocol, you know, I don't, like, when you look at something like AIM, it's not really built on HTTP, it's built more on top of TCPI and its own protocol, and they have this big team of developers, and they have lots of servers, and you know, tons of money behind them. But, you know, that that wasn't something that Twitter had in the start. So when you look at uh when you look at somebody like Engine Yard out there doing business class Rails hosting, do you see any real competitors to to Engine Yard? Like any real solid competitors? Yeah, probably the closest thing I've ever seen, um, you know, besides Steel Pixel, when we did the hosting we were awesome. You know, you could totally scale to like <laughs> Millions of users, not really, right. but um, probably Planet Argon. But really, it depends on what you want to do. Like, if you want an application that's easily scalable, I would say go with Engineard. But if you were looking, you know, for something that just needs to have good uptime, then I would look at, at you know, something like Planet Argon. Um, or, or even, you know, it, it really depends on your price range too, though, because I mean, obviously spending, you know, whatever their slices are per month, multiple hundred dollar slices doesn't make a lot of sense if you're not really making any money with a project. So I think when you have, when you're making money on a project, it makes a lot of sense to go with Engineer. So a lot of what Engineer, especially from the podcast, when we sat down with Ezra, it sounded like that they've basically, over the last, I don't know, three years since basically before when he got into Ruby and eventually founded Engineer, what we know today, is that they've basically been the, the guinea pig for a business class Rails hosting platform. And over time, they've essentially baked this system that 
every time they tweak it or optimize it, it benefits the whole, not just one part. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because, I mean, there, it's just one of those things, like, if if I go out, like, with EC2 and build a rail stack, and, I, you know, I find little tweaks, and I can go in and make the tweak to the image and push it out to all the other, you know, EC2 instances, I mean, obviously, that's that's something that's really, really nice. And that's essentially what they've created with a standard stack. So uh, just uh, maybe getting back to the Planet Argon thing a little more. So Planet Argon offers like, you know, $60, $70, $80 packages for business class hosting. And I think that's nice. You know, they'll put you on a server where, you know, there's only maybe 10 other websites running on it. So you don't have to worry so much about another website taking you down. But the really nice thing about the Engine Yard version is that they use um, actual slices. Um, you know, they're using something like VMware. I don't. I'm sure that's maybe that is what they use. I don't know. He said something about DOM zero. So, but they're using actual like virtual machines within one server. So rather than like. Over here at Planet Argon, you have one server with 10 sites. Over here at, at Engine Yard, you may have, you know, 20 slices hosting 20 sites. But it, when you're on a slice, if one slice crashes and goes down, it can't really take down any of the other slices. I mean, I'm sure there's little bugs in there that can cause problems. But, I mean, if that's something that you're really worried about, it's some obscure VMware bug, I, I would almost say go with a second slice and they have load balancers. So if your, your one slice goes down, they change the config on the load balancer. All of a sudden your other slice is handling a hundred percent of the traffic and your site stays up. You could basically move an entire server, you know, from a virtual standpoint without sort of, you, know, you probably have like a, a millisecond downtime. Yeah. Well, I think it's a little more than that, but in engine yards case, because they're using GFS, it is really, really fast for them to be able to boot up, you know, another slice and get you back going in the mix. They've even come further with their tools than even when they started. So, like, you could see, like, when the Lighthouse guys launched, they released a lot of new stuff that allows them to easily clone a slice and redeploy it and tweak it and get it up and running so you'll have a new slice to play with. And, uh, like, they had to, instead of cloning like they wanted to do, um, because the Lighthouse stuff was older, I mean, like, what was it, a year and a half old at this point? They uh, they had to just set up a new slice and get everything up and running and do some extra testing because the, the cloning tools didn't work on their older slice. So, I mean, they're, they're definitely moving forward very fast with their their tools and, and what they can do, and it's it's kind of exciting. And without further ado, on to the interview with Blaine Cook at Future of Web Apps in Miami, Florida. So here we are at uh, FOA. This is uh, our third episode. We're here with Blaine Cook of Twitter. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Blaine, uh, who you work for, and uh, what you do there. Sure. Um, I'm, I guess my title is Lead Architect at, at Twitter. Uh, so, you know, maybe I'm the one that, to blame for all of the, the downtime. <laughs> Hopefully not, but... <laughs> So, um, but I'm, I'm working hard to, to keep it up. Um, I've been working at Twitter since it was obvious and before that at Odeo, uh, so about three years now. And originally I'm from Vancouver, uh, in Canada. 
So where did the idea from for Twitter come from? So that's uh, Twitter was one of Jack's ideas, and he's been really obsessed with uh, messaging and and sort of you know this how do you how do you stay in touch dispatching these sorts of ideas. Um, he worked at a started a company uh, a few years back that was um, uh, bike dispatching, and so he got he got the the messaging and communications bug in his in his blood and uh, couldn't stop thinking about it and. Uh, at Odeo, we were trying to figure out what Odeo did and what we were going to do with Odeo, and we we were experimenting with you know um, if you if you move away a little bit from the podcasting stuff, you can you get into sort of how do we use Odeo as as a communications platform, and then that you know the, that kind of opened the door for for Twitter to sort of like oh we could do this, and so um we've been playing with some some voice over ip stuff and so the telecommunications like the the phone systems made sense at the time and it kind of turned into a spin-off interesting yeah actually we interviewed some guys that did a a voice over ip service called lip and does uh they can record mp3 now so it's definitely like i could see where that would might have gone 38 yeah something like that what uh, what's what's probably been the toughest thing as far as like creating Twitter, and, and working on it? Like obviously you've worked on it from the start. Yeah, um, probably I think I think just having the resources and and you know keeping focused and making sure that it's really easy to get into a situation where you're constantly in this crisis mode, and when you're when you're trying to build a site that's growing really quickly and you're trying to keep control over everything. It's, it's easy to let pieces slip through the clock, through the cracks. And so, you know, last year, um, in January, Twitter was just starting to take off. And, um, I was the only developer for a month and a half. Um, and, you know, unfortunately we didn't do the, the pounce thing. And so anyone could sign up. And so it was growing really quickly. And, you know, when, when you're the only person that's, that's, that's doing code, it's, it's really difficult to keep on top of things. Um, so we hired some people and we're actually only six people. So we've been hiring really aggressively lately, um, to try and, um, you know, there's lots of things to do. And so yeah. that, that's you really You guys have difficult. like 20 people in your office now, don't you? Uh, I think we're 16, but 16. I'm not, in, yeah, 15 or 16. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And six developers and two ops people. Yeah. So. Like, I, I know Alex and I know Britt, but mm-hmm. who else do you have on the development? Uh, so we have, uh, Alyssa Husky. Um, and we recently hired, uh, Roby Pointer, um, who, uh, he's coming from danger. Uh, and he built the, the IM infrastructure for the, the for the hip top. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then we, uh, we recently started working with, uh, with, uh, David Pollack, um, okay. from, he wrote the Lyft, uh, framework, uh, for Scala. So we're, we're working with him on oh, that. Interesting. So, and, and we, we recently hired a, a well, Few months now, uh, VP of Operations and Engineering uh, Lee McDowell. So um, he's he wrote the first version of QuickTime, which is kind of fun, huh. fun thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite the team there. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good time. So, um, how do you guys decide? Like, who's in control of like deciding 
what needs to be worked on, like what features might be going into the app or, or kind of where you guys focus your time? Sure. Um, in, in terms of feature development, you know, we work with, uh, we have an interaction designer and, and, uh, Evan, Jason and biz, you know, I'll, I'll contribute to the, the product design. Um, and so they, they help flesh out ideas and, and, you know, sort of do the first, first level prioritization. Um, and you know, they're, they're really the ones that are, that are driving the, the user facing features of the site. Um, but then of course, you know, we have to negotiate, okay, well we have time to do this, or this is really technically difficult, or this is easy, or, you know, we have to adjust those things. So, um, so sometimes things, uh, will, will get deprioritized based on how difficult they are. Um, but then within the, the engineering team and, and operations and so on, um, it varies a little bit. Uh, generally we're trying to, to do a consensus kind of, um, approach. So everyone has the ability to sort of say, I don't know that we should be working on this or, um, or, you know, we should be, we should really be working on this. This is important and no one's brought it up yet. So, so anyone can bring up things at any time. Um, do you guys get a lot of user feedback? Yeah, we get a, who handles that? Um, so we have a, a support team, um, that, that handles the email. Um, and, do they yeah, just like sure. keep track of like the issues as they come in and maybe yeah. bring up the big ones? Yeah, um, we've we've started using uh, Get Satisfaction recently, okay. and that's that's been a great tool for us because it you know it lets users help other users, uh, which is a, is a great help, um, and it also lets everyone sort of see all of the, the open issues and, you know, you can see if someone else has already replied to, to a problem and you can kind of get a sense like, Oh, there's a bunch of people, you know, commenting on this thread. Maybe there's something important. So, um, so we can kind of see, um, things that way. And it gives us better transparency, uh, to our users. So when we say something there, we can, you know, everyone can see it. It's not just an email to one person. It's an email to a bunch of people. So I, I saw Alex Twitter about, uh, transparency of friend feed and uh mm-hmm. they actually i know i found this interesting they actually put their commit logs like out there for you to see yeah um like what, what are your thoughts on that do you think that's like a security risk or uh, too much exposure or it's a good question i mean you you definitely have to be more careful with your change logs um <laughs> uh i would have to censor mine yeah, um, some, <laughs> I curse in mine for sure. Uh, so I, I'm not sure that I would necessarily go that far. Um, you know, I think that I, I'm, you know, I really support openness. I, I don't think that I, I wouldn't do it on principle. Um, I think that it's, it's a really cool idea. Um, and, and I think, uh, friend feed is awesome for doing that, but, You know, I think the way that it, it would have to change the way that you do development right. because you you then have to be, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you... Everyone you must, has to be mindful of how public it is. It, it, you have to be mindful of how public it is as well as like, you know, you get into those, those states where you're just debugging something and you do 
a hundred commits or yeah. well, maybe just 10 commits, but you know, where you're trying to debug something and, and you're like, okay, I think I got it this time. Oh no, I didn't get it. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's not, that's not something that you want to, to necessarily share because it's just, you know, you're just working through a problem. And How do you, um, do you guys use like Capistrano? Yeah. So we use, we use Capistrano for our deploys. Um, we use uh, a tool called Puppet for uh, server management. Um, it's really fantastic. Uh, like in place of God or Monit? No, so we're using, I don't know if we're using God or Monit right now, one of the two. Um, uh, there's problems with both. Um, but, yeah, so we... Um, so is Puppet like a replacement for it's, it's Argios not, or... No, it, I mean, we use, so we are, are sort of... Uh, uh, system administration stack is uh, Nagios for monitoring, um, and then we have Ganglia for s- sort of server stat monitoring and so on. And then Puppet manages our configuration. Um, so it's Puppet is a is a tool that lets you say this machine is a a web class machine or this machine's a database class machine, uh, okay. and it'll make sure that like the the MySQL package is installed on the database class machines and the MySQL gem is installed on the web class machines, and um and then it it does things like it'll install Apache and and set up the configuration files for Apache so you you never have to log into a machine to configure it. It it reduces the the chance of like errors happening. If somebody logs in to change something or accidentally changes something on a machine, um, Puppet will will change it back, um, and and that's that's really great. Um, <laughs> if you do an upgrade and one of the packages changes a config file, um, Puppet will try and change it back. Um, and if it fails, it'll send you an email and say I couldn't change this file. It's inconsistent. It's not what I expect. And then you can fix it. And so you're you're aware that things are broken, which is it's really great to have that. Um, and Puppet is it written in Ruby? It is. It is yeah, written in Ruby. Yeah. Um, the the actual configuration syntax for Puppet is um, uh, a DSL that that uh, Luke Haynes came up with, um, but it's not. It doesn't actually use Ruby, so when you're writing the config files, it's you don't have access to the full Ruby stack, and there's some good reasons for that. But yeah. it takes a little bit to get used to, but it's it's quite nice. So, like, I don't know. I guess you guys have kind of been the anti-poster child for rail scaling. Oh, <laughs> what uh, what what's your setup now, and like, what what steps did you have to take to really kind of get to a, a more stable platform? Right. Um, so I think, you know, one of the biggest uh, challenges that we had, you know, recently at least is, is capacity planning. Um, it's been a lot of work and, and you know, we've, uh, we're now hosted on, on NTT and we've got lots of capacity. You know, things are, things are much um, much better as far as capacity goes, and and uh, that's helped a lot. You know, we've we've doubled the number of servers that we're running on, um, which is huge because you know when you're when you're running and and things are constantly overloaded, um, that makes it even harder to fix problems. Right. Um, gives you less room to move and so on. Um, so so that's been really important. Um, the other thing, I guess that. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think that Rails has been really great. It's it's definitely slow. 
active record does a lot of kind of crazy things. Um, you know, I, I, I don't doubt that there are reasons for all of them. Um, but a lot of the, the way that it sort of handles that, that interface can be really inefficient. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that we're, uh, that we're dealing with right now is like, it's, you know, it's hard to just say, select these columns. Right. So if you've got a, a wide column that can have a big impact on my SQL performance. And so, you know, we're using all these joins and automatic, uh, rails finders and it wants to pull in all of the columns and it's kind of a performance hit and it's, it's a pretty big performance hit for us. Yeah. So, so that's, you know, that's a difficult thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there's not, not a ton you can do about it, but, um, that it's not, it's not impossible to fix that. And, you know, you just, worst case you drop back to the MySQL handle, which, you know, that, that connection handle is what you're using in, in PHP or whatever. Right. Um, and, and it's not hard to do that. So, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I found a, a nasty bug. Like last night I had a, uh, eight table kind of like nested include for one of the queries. And, uh, it just like when we pushed it to product, it was fine on my box. But we pushed it to production, and as soon as you pull up, like, a recipe page, it would just, like, you could see the mongrel just balloon up to, like, 300 megs. And, uh, like, each one would die, like, as they took a hit for the recipe page. Wow, that's awful. Um, yeah, I think um, one of the things that we've been doing a lot of um, for, for a long time, but we've actually been getting more more aggressive with it, is removing joints. Um uh, you know, it's it's actually really surprising when you get to to dealing with large sets and large tables and whatnot, um, just how expensive joins are. Um, you know, especially at high concurrency, you've got there's some really weird edge cases that come up, and and removing what would normally be a perfectly reasonable join um, uh, can give you a, a, a pretty big benefit. Um, and I think. You know, I, I would I would really appreciate it if, if Rails had more um, hooks for it. Kind of does, but they're not. They're fairly brittle. Um, uh, you know, things like find target and stuff you can override them, but you know, there's not a lot of helpers to to let you do that. Um, and so, so removing joins can be can be quite painful. Um, and it's important to do that because you know, especially when you when you hit a wall, uh, you know, and you need to start moving tables to different databases or or do um, user specific choosing for um, for which table you're going to hit uh, that that stuff becomes much more difficult in rails when you're when you're doing those joins you have to add a bunch of code and it would be it'd be nice if it didn't make it that, that quite so hard yeah so are you guys using sharding then for uh, database setup? yeah we've just started in the last few weeks we, we've um, uh, put in some more database capacity um, to do the sharding. And um, we've started to put in some distributed indexes um, and, uh, you know, moving out denormalized uh, data to separate databases um, so that we don't have to pull everything from the same database. How do you guys communicate internally? Sure. Um, We use uh, use IRC. 
We used to use Campfire. Not quite sure why we stopped. Um, apparently, there's some Twitter integration for it now, so that would be or uh, Jabber integration. Someone, oh, really? uh, someone built that. That would be cool. Um, uh, what else do we use? Um, we have. Uh, sort of an internal Twitter group thing um, that that we use to coordinate, uh, you know, based on uh, Kellen uh, Elliot McRae from Flickr wrote this thing called Twitterpated, which is just an app that you, you hook up to a private account. And when you send it a direct message, when you send that account a direct message, uh, it, it listens over the Jabber um, connection um, and reposts that with your name to its account. And so everyone who's following that private account will get the message um, with with your name appended and, and see that it's to this this group, which is really just a user that reposts the, the yeah. message. Yeah. We actually have something kind of like that with the Tasty Planner. Mm-hmm. You just send it a direct, direct message and mm-hmm. it'll repost it. Right, yeah. yeah for everyone to see <laughs> Yeah, so we found that that fairly useful. It's um, uh, you know a lot of people have asked for for group support, and I think that that's about the closest that we've come so far. I mean, yeah. we've definitely done a lot of thinking, and there, you know, it won't look exactly like that. But I, um, you know, the groups is, is sort of a it's a tricky thing because even though we use it internally, it's there's a lot of problems with it, and so um, you know when you're designing for for mobile interfaces, um, especially SMS. Um, the, the interaction design there gets really, really complicated um, to, to make it simple. So what do you guys use for ticketing or milestone tracking or anything like that? Uh, we're using track. Um, not a big fan of it. Yeah, it's, no, it's, definitely not. It's okay. Uh, it has some, has some good things. It's missing a lot of things that would be great. Um, we haven't really found a, a milestone management system that that we're um that we're all fond of um you know with with track we just try and keep you know you, you assign yourself to one bug at a time um I, I i personally kind of find it a lot of the projects that i'm working on are are big projects uh you know they're, they're things that that have been relatively carefully planned out and and so you know they're they're really just coding projects Right, and I don't personally spend a lot of time just fixing bugs, and so having such a fine grained tracking tool um, doesn't always make sense. So, like, how many servers do you guys have? Do you have that number? That's that's a good question. Um, actually, well, you, you guys confused. were using Joyent before, and mm-hmm. then you just made the switch to NTT. Is that yeah, it? yeah. Um, we have. I think we have fewer than a hundred servers. Oh, really? Okay. So, um, yeah, it's you know we we try really hard not to use too many servers. Um, I think that you know, as I said in the talk, you know you you have to make sure that the the capacity is there, um, but you don't want to you don't want to over provision. Um, so I think for for a long time we were under provisioned, um, and now. Um, we definitely have an overcapacity, but I think it's not it's not too big. Um, and I think the the most important thing to do is just have something like Ganglia. Um, you know, we use we use JMeter to sort of gauge how many 
request per second and so on we can get from a machine and what the different interactions and so on are. Um, and uh, and then you can, if you know that more or less, you can do some fairly simple math and you know draw draw a line on a on a graph and say this is where we need more servers. And if you if you know where you where you think you're going to hit the capacity um, endpoint, so you want to work with you know um, your product people and and get the operations people involved and the engineers and everyone makes an estimate of like this is where we think we're going to fall over. And uh, and then you you take the the sort of point that you all agree on, and you draw a line back. Um, uh, to how long it takes to get servers, then you add some buffer time, and then you draw down on your on your graph, and that's that's the date that you have to order the servers. Um, you know, I think it's a it's a simple tool, but I don't think a lot of people do it, and yeah. and so you can you can really get stuck if if you're not doing that. Yeah. So how do you guys prepare for the extra capacity you might need, like in particular for South by Southwest or an mm-hmm. event like uh, the Super Bowl? I think mm-hmm. you guys saw some spike for that. Um, yeah. Super Bowl was uh, was a messaging spike. We um, all of our downtime lately has actually been changes that we're making, um, unfortunately. Uh, but our we've we've been adding a lot of capacity, and a lot of that is in, in anticipation of these events and so on. Um, so you know we try and keep a calendar of of when things are going to happen and uh and then do our best to to prepare um for those events um macworld was one where we we really didn't do that and you know it, it kind of caught us uh, it didn't catch us by surprise and no one was surprised but we hadn't been doing planning because we've been so um uh, so focused on on the move um that that doing extra capacity planning wasn't, you know, it wasn't really the, the highest priority. Uh, I'm not sure that it would have helped. So what actually happened during Macworld was there were a number of popular Mac sites that had put Twitter badges on their homepages. And so we got all of their traffic and all of our traffic. And, you know, I think the only site that didn't go down that day was uh, uh, MacRumors. Um, and I've heard reports that maybe they did go down for a time, and it was it was one of those things where you know we we saw the graph go up, and um, I was kind of sitting there in the office trying to do everything we everything I could just to to keep the site alive, and um, we saw the traffic uh, double, and and the graph didn't look like it was slowing down, and then we <laughs> sat we had saturated all of our Apaches, and they all fell over, and all the Apaches crashed. Um, <laughs> so, so it was, you know, I think there were, um, there were over 20,000 or 50,000 or something pending requests that were just not getting serviced, like at, at some random time. Um, and, and that was the, the all, all we could do was sit there and watch the site just like, yeah, it's dead. So, <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I think we're, um, we're definitely learning from those things, and um, you know, as you as you get into these larger scale situations, um, you know, some of the things that we're working on are um, Alex is is working on uh, using thin and rack um, yeah. to to provide a more lightweight front end to our API caching, um, and then we're working on on adding certain knobs and dials to turn off parts of the sites uh, or, 
you know, save some some work, like increase the length of time that we do caching. Um, you know, Twitter is a real time messaging service, and so especially in events like Macworld where lots of people are updating, um, our cache retention actually goes down quite a bit. And so, um, so we're working on ways to, to sort of adjust that, um, as, as needed because, you know, it's bad if you don't get a message right away. Um, and, and we're very sensitive to that, but it's worse if the site is down. And so it's sort of trying to build those, those dials in. Right. So uh, this is probably jumping the gun on the super secret question. We usually ask everyone, like, is there anything super secret they're working on? Are, are we going to see um, an iPhone app when the SDK comes out for Twitter? Um, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> honestly, uh, I would be surprised if someone um, either hasn't already written an iPhone app um, using the SDK uh, or if someone beats us to it. So, um, I mean, obviously we're, we're mostly a rails and a web shop, so we don't have anyone, um, on staff who, who really focuses on, on application development or, or Mac application development. Um, so, you know, we'll see. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of speculation during Macworld that there was going to be some kind of like Twitter partner announcement because <laughs> Evan had posted some stuff about meeting Steve Jobs, like the month before Macworld, mm-hmm. but nothing ever came. So we we're all kind of like, um, yeah, yeah. I think well, and when when Apple released the the iPhone HTML stuff, um, I think Twitter was was one of the first apps that someone wrote, um, like a, a Twitter iPhone app. Yeah. So, so are there any books you'd recommend if people are interested, either in uh, Ruby or or even server scaling? Um, that's a really good question. I think, you know, obviously I'd recommend Cal's book, uh, the building scalable websites. I think that that, that covers a lot of good things. Um, and then I think it's Theo Schlossnagel has a scalability book, um, as well. That's quite good. Uh, one that I've been meaning to read is, uh, collective intelligence. Um, that, that one's, uh, pretty intriguing. I, I like the idea of, you know, taking sort of getting clustered data and and seeing patterns emerge from from the data it gets really interesting. With you know, when you when you've got a lot of data, uh, seeing that kind of thing becomes really um, really compelling. Um, you know, Flickr did that with their with their interestingness stuff, and so collective intelligence designing collective. I'm not sure exactly. It's a No Riley book um, is is the first sort of full book on that subject. Um, that I've seen, and it gets into, you know, k-means clustering and all these sorts of um, algorithmic approaches, uh, but explains them to people that aren't mathematicians. Hmm. Interesting. I'll just check that one out. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show, Blaine. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I have myself here, Adam Stikoviak with Blaine Cook from Twitter and Cal Henderson from Flickr. Gentlemen, how are you? Uh, not bad. Not bad. Tired as fuck. Tired as fuck. And you're sick of being interviewed by me, right? <laughs> this is two today. Except for last time I couldn't talk very you, well. You, you may remember me from such podcasts as that one I recorded six hours ago. <laughs> Less than. Uh, so I have one question, and the one question is, uh, can you describe the definitive difference between uh, Rails and PHP in uh, in your environments? Well, well, Rails and PHP 
on on it's like apples to oranges. I mean, that's like rail uh, Ruby to PHP as a comparison of languages, right? And nobody built and you know stuff is built in languages, but stuff is built in frameworks on top of those languages. Rails is equivalent to all of the crappy shit ass PHP frameworks that we don't use, or the framework that we end up building as you know as we build Flickr. So. I mean, you know, that's very much the languages. It's a classic misconception that why why we hate Rails is because we hate yeah. Ruby. Yeah, I think um, you know when I when I look at when I look at our our architectures, basically I don't see very much difference between like LiveJournal, Flickr, and, and Twitter. They're architecturally very very similar. That's because we all copy LiveJournal. Well, sure, but you know whatever. Uh, the, the, they're still all the same in the back end, right? The yep. only the only difference is what we show on the front end and what what trade offs we make in terms of how we show things and what decisions we make in terms of how we cache things. That's yeah. really the only difference. You know, Ruby is a little bit slower than PHP, but I get fun things like blocks. Um, you know, PHP is is more direct and and you don't spend time later on kind of futzing with. Why the fuck did they think to use a left outer join? Now I have to go and fucking fix that, those assholes. And then you can f- fix it, and it's not a big deal. Yeah, unless you're using a framework on top of PHP that, that is crap in the same way that Ruby's ORM is crap, right? And that it's not crap. It's awesome for building things really quickly. It's just not built for really large, scaled-out things. Sure. Right? Yeah. And no matter what you do, no matter what language you choose, you know, you can, you can uh, go and build your website in Joe Camel, and it'll be the fastest fucking website in the world. <laughs> Um, you're still going to swear and you're still going to stay up nights and you're still going to, to hate life and, and, and everything if, if you have an ounce of users visiting your site. You know, yeah, at some I mean, point. It's, it's never about the language. It's almost always about the architecture. And nobody ever gets the architecture right first time. And if they do, then they probably spent way too long on it. Yeah, you know? and Things therefore they don't to break. have traffic. That's how stuff works. Yeah. It's a simple answer. Unless you write it in Haskell. I've heard that that just works. Totally scalable, 100% as a language. Unfortunately, you have to be a robot. <laughs> yeah, I know one person who writes Haskell. He wrote the book. <laughs> Excellent. So you can imagine in, in, in your minds uh, Cal and I hugging and, and rainbows and, and ponies and, and unicorns and so on. No, no big fight here. That's exactly what's happening. Now we're going to go get drunk. All right. Awesome. Can, can we do a follow-up question? One question. Question. You said one question. You said one question. The question is, um, you know, Blaine, in your talk today, um, you talked a lot about some problems with memcache and other, other things that, that at being new, being new, newer technology or less mature technology that you found had to, had to overcome. Get the mic Cal, get the mic <laughs> No, just do it, man. <laughs> That's a that's a really you know great answer, guys. We really appreciate that. If I may follow up, Blaine, today in your talk you talked about um, how at Twitter, you know, I mean, everyone knows some of the difficulties with uptime and that sort of thing, and that, that a lot of the cause for those difficulties is because you've chosen kind of a a, 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 a less mature environment with with you know, even though Ruby's older than Java, certainly the frameworks and some of the, the APIs and libraries aren't as um, Mature as as PHP or Java or other environments, um, and that you've you've had to patch memcache and other things. So, Cal, my question for you is: um, Did you have a have like or similar experiences with PHP and Flickr and some of the, the technologies you chose to scale Flickr? 
I mean, the answer is basically yes. We tend to have all of the same problems. I mean, none of the technology we're using, the web isn't mature enough for people to have figured out all these issues. And generally in the past where people have figured out these issues, they don't tell anybody else. I mean, until the last couple of years, everyone doing anything big on the web has been keeping it a secret as if, you know, the technology was their defining difference. This is certainly the case with the, with the big companies. And I think it was really until LiveJournal uh, started telling everyone exactly what they were doing and you know calling out these problems that people started to learn about it so there's still so much we need to learn um, it's probably fair to think to think of uh, the web and, and related technologies as being somewhere about the telephone in 1930 you know you you couldn't pick up the phone then uh, dial a number and get uh, Estonia with a crystal clear line you know we're still figuring this stuff out um, you know all the all the basics are there and we we kind of know roughly what we're doing but the the reality is that you know outside of of google and well i was going to say yahoo but <laughs> no let's be realistic <laughs> you know the, very few people actually know what they're what what the the details of these things and even if you do it gets to be such a complex system that no one person could possibly hold all of this stuff in their head so yeah, and everyone's know. just fixing stuff over time and and dealing with these problems as they arise right yeah. and half of the Half of the awesomeness uh, with a lot of people working on the web is that they build stuff in the right way that they can anticipate problems and deal with them before they, you know, take their sites offline or start to be a real issue. You know, it's, it's not like it's not like MySpace never has changes at its back end, you know, because they're dealing with some problem or another. They just don't talk about it as much as uh, some of the other kind of Web 2.0-ish companies do. Thanks very much. So I, I'd just like to ask one last question. Feel free not to answer, um, but. <laughs> But both of you guys have been at your companies, which, which by the way, I'm big fans of both. Um, um, since we since be since the beginning, if you weren't. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> since the beginning, and so uh, obviously you guys are very very familiar with your own products, and I assume very familiar with each other's products. Um, is there any way in the world that you guys would have preferred or liked to switch places at this point? I'd quite like to have Blaine's hair. It's pretty impressive. Mm, thank you. Uh, <laughs> um. I think your office is nicer than mine as well. I don't know. You guys have a pretty good view. I like it's your view. It's true, but it's in, it's in financial district. You guys district. have better food, too. Honestly, South Park, mm, the food's okay. South Park's way great. more trendy. It's also closer it is, to my house. It is, it is very trendy. We are, the Twitter offices are right on South Park. It's, it's uh, you know, I've never been. Fantastic. I've never been invited to the Twitter offices. Cal, you're always invited to the Twitter offices. Oh, thank you, Blaine. Do you, do you have a T-shirt? Yes, I do. Okay, I have one good. of the first, first runs as good, well. Good, 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 good. Um, I, I'm sorry. I didn't. I didn't bring t-shirt. I was really way too busy, and I, I was. I was sitting in my in my bedroom at at two in the morning, packing to come here a couple of nights ago. And I'm like, shit. I really should have brought some t-shirts, but it's two in the morning, and my flight leaves at six a.m. So that's not going to happen. But if if any of you want t-shirts, um, and any of you listeners want t-shirts, just just send us your address and. Um, a thousand dollars, and we'll send you one. Possibly yeah, less yeah. than a thousand dollars. Yeah, Flickr too. You can get my personal uh, address off my website. Feel free to just send me cash. <laughs> Kick-ass business class Rails hosting, go to engineer.com. That's E-N-G-I-N-E-Y-A-R-D.com.